www.jewishmusicnetwork.org. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. In darkness, from the ones who walk in light, light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and before I start, I must make a correction. We just heard an announcement for the um, uh, program. So, how'd you become an activist? And it was back in November, folks. Let me give you an update. Uh, the next one, so how'd you become an activist? This monthly series in which local activists share their experiences. And, uh, you know, the influences that help them become a force for change. Uh, the next one is Thursday, December 15th. Uh, that's, yes, about, uh, yeah, two weeks from Thursday, 7 p.m. And it's Wavy Gravy and Diamond Dave Whitaker. Now, that is a real combo. Wavy Gravy is the instigator of Hog Farm. And the Siva Foundation, Woodstock MC, the saint in the clown suit. And Diamond Dave is always with us. The irreverently relevant poet and hipstorian rainbow warrior just returned from New Orleans, Katrina Relief. Okay. Now, Wavy Gravy and Diamond Dave Whitaker, activists who are going to talk about... Uh, <laughs> yes. How to get to the barricades. Yes, boys and girls, get up on those barricades. I'm just a Berkeley broad in Birkenstocks. Every time I get up on the barricades, I fall down. Okay. Entertainment and eru... I can never say that. Erudition. These two wise elders will be at New College, 777 Valencia Street. That's between 18th and 19th Street in San Francisco. Valencia between 18th and 19th, 777 Valencia. And donation $5, please, students, $3, okay. And it's a benefit for the New College Activism and Social Change Program. You can call over to New College. Just look it up, folks, look it up. The phone number's in the 415 area code. The number's 927 1645, 927-1645. Uh, just call over at New College and ask. It's 7 o'clock Thursday evening, December 15th. Maybe I can get Diamond Dave and Wavy Gravy on the air here on the 13th on my Tuesday show. Now, next Tuesday, 6 December, I will be gone. I will be preempted for a splendid reading. Pacifica Radio Archives is going to celebrate the 35th anniversary of the WBAI broadcast marathon reading of Tolstoy's 
War and peace. You heard it here. Yes. A centennial celebration. Read in its entirety, beginning, good Lord. This started back in 1970. Anyway, it's an old tradition. So next Tuesday, we will be reading War and Peace here on KPFA. So I will be among the missing that day. Now, let's see what else. Oh, any number of preemptions. And, of course, Saturday and Sunday, all the... Uh, Regular programs are preempted because we'll be over there at the Crafts Fair. We'll be broadcasting live December 10 and 11. That's not this weekend, next weekend, weekend after. December 10 and 11, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. I'll be there selling my books and tapes. Let's see, I have only four titles books, but I'll make some CDs and maybe there's something you would like to get for your Christmas. Um it's the crafts fair. My craft is uh, words. I'm a wordsmith, as they say. Uh, okay, that's December 10 and 11, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And I want to thank all those of you who've written me letters. I, I will be off next week. Maybe I can try to get busy and answer some of my mail. I, I think that it's time for me to do that. I do especially appreciate the kind of letters you write to me, uh, especially there are several letters here about the the show Good Night and Good Luck. Uh, this being KPFA, of course, we have serious historians, uh, people who really want things to be uh, exact and precise. And, of course, <laughs> people found all sorts of things to complain about regarding uh, the Edward R. Murrow uh, movie, and uh, we have to we have to just admit, folks, that you know it's the truth is uh, that all film is uh, advocacy journalism. That's what art is. You remember old Bertolt Brecht? He told us that art is a hammer with which to shape. Uh, society, civilization, you know, uh, you cannot be uh, neutral. And you certainly cannot tell the whole truth in a two-hour film. Uh, there's one letter here who wonders whether or not George Clooney uh, uh, had some limitations as an historian. The letter, the letter says that uh, Clooney was influenced by his father, that the uh, uh, admiration for Murrow was something that George Clooney got directly from his dad, and it's asked the question, did the film give you any indication that he ever questioned anything his father told him? Well, as I said, I think in my brief review, um, this movie is nostalgia for those of us progressives who like to think that there was a time when journalists uh, were a class act or when the fourth estate was a little bit more... Uh, uh, oh, what is the word? That we had a little more integrity than appears to be the case these days. As uh, uh, I was just saying, uh, there's no way that art can uh, be completely fair to everyone. As Emily Dickinson wrote, uh, tell the truth, but tell it slant. You know, the point of view, obviously, is... Uh, 
in favor of uh, Edward R. Morrow. And it does show Joe McCarthy as a total slob. But, you know, what the hell? <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. Let's see. What did I plan to do today? Today is is uh, November 29th and December is upon us. My God, December is upon us. The holy days are coming in. It's cold at my house. The giant Christmas tree has arrived at the White House. Laura Bush has announced that this year's theme will be, I quote, I kid you not, uh, her theme will be all things bright and beautiful. <laughs> now, okay, yeah, you talk about, you talk about, talk about advocacy. Yes, you tell about slant. My God, that my breakfast nearly came up when I heard that. Hang on to your hats, boys and girls. Going to be a bumpy ride this year. The Republican administration may be tanking, but it's just too long to wait. Uh, God, when will we have a new constitutional convention? May not be the time for that, actually. When can we figure out how to restore our republic? I mean, if we could just manage to... Uh, Amend the Constitution. How about that? Just, just, uh, have a collective consciousness raising in, uh, the Congress and amend this, uh, at least this electoral process. Something to make it possible to fire ineffective administrations, you know. This lame duck mess. How exhausting to have to wait for criminal prosecutions, to listen to all this wasteful wrangling, Oh, is this any way to run a country? <laughs> was it Cory Aquino? She said, there are so many ways, many, many ways to run a country. But there is only one way to treat people. Indeed. The last administration was certainly wicked enough, but at least the Clintons steered the ship of state. Uh, they managed, you know, uh, to stay uh, on board in spite of... Uh, all that partisan politics and even that sting operation, that vicious impeachment debacle. Now, the current gang uh, has steered the ship of state right onto the rocks, just crashed right down into the muck, you know, a bunch of greedy monomaniacs who believe in their divine right to rule. Yes, they're certainly not patricians, they are... Vulgarians. Uh, they have no sense of noblesse oblige like FDR and JFK. They are avaricious, yes. Like lowlifes. They treat my country as if it belonged to them, body and soul, that it was theirs for their use. Uh, actually, I have heard the president refer to his country ownership assumption. They think they can use or abuse us just as they wish. It's that king thing, total entitlement. Uh, they don't even maintain that pose of public servant. You know, they consider that passe. Uh, some of us remember LBJ going to New Orleans back in 1965 uh, after Hurricane Betsy. You know, he was there in a matter of hours. <laughs> 
grandstanding. This is your president, madam. There he was with a flashlight and uh, whatever it was the people needed. Uh, you know, job description, right. Yes, it helps to read your job description. The governor of Louisiana actually called to tell LBJ to get his ass out there. <laughs> Quick, you know, politics. You want to get elected, you know, you, you better you better haul ass today. The White House, uh, the White House, I, I, I don't know, what is it? Um, they have to make films, videos uh, to show them what's happening. Recently, there was one about, uh, uh, you know, uh, the end of all things. Uh, they showed it on television several times, hoping that Bush might see it, but... Now all they're interested in is the decor, the all things bright and beautiful. It's kind of a shop window uh, on a corporate kingdom. I think of Nancy Reagan taking the Queen of England to uh, Soundstage 5 at 20th Century Fox and saying, come and see my kingdom. Ah, yes, come and look at the glittering gluttons of greed. Ah. I didn't used to mind it on Fifth Avenue, but somehow or another, it's become poisonous again. You know, the poor pressing their noses against the glass. Recalls Dickensian Victorian novels. Uh, lately I've been dreaming in snow and ice. Uh, tyranny. For some reason or another, yes, free association is my downfall. It took me... Uh, into the the fantasy of this new movie, Narnia. You know, the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's just about to open in time for Christmas. Uh, that's my ultimate escape. I'm going to grab some little children, and we're going to go see The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Ah, uh, fantasy, folks. Uh I had trouble with C.S. Lewis, um, the author, his children's classic. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that I was fond of when I was young, but the visuals here, you know, uh, it's just in time for Christmas, and I found it much less painful, say, than Lord of the Rings, which I know so many people loved, but gave me such a headache. Tilda Swinton is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She's the fire and ice, the snow queen, the demonic witch. Personally, I love the beavers best. They're just adorable. The thing is, C.S. Lewis, the script, you know, he, he always irritated me. Uh, I don't think I'm going to care, and I don't think the audience will care either. They will just look at all the visuals of... Uh, there's all that Christian confusion, and I do find that a waste of time. I prefer when C.S. Lewis is just a magician, just just uh, just does magic. Scholars make such a fuss about the Christianity stuff. Uh, as a magician, he's completely adequate. It's not my favorite fairy tale, but what the hell. The movie uses um, the World War II boyhood of C.S. Lewis and his older brother, Warney. Uh, you see them in an air raid shelter. The fantasy transports them uh, to Narnia. You know how that is. Uh, writers, they need to remove themselves from reality. 
I was just thinking there's another free associative footnote. Uh, Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Charlotte Bronte had taken her father to the doctor and she was stuck in a, a boarding house room. Her father had to have his eyes operated on and they had to put leeches on his eyes. She was uh, applying the leeches and there couldn't be any light because it was his eyesight cataracts or something. So she couldn't read. She was stupefied with toothache and had uh, hideous headaches. So uh, she conceived the novel Jane Eyre. You see, there is some use to suffering. <laughs> I think I think that was a pretty pain, painful one. Anyway, Narnia is this kind of never-never land at the back of beyond. You know the drill. Uh, I've given The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to several children, but... I, I'm never sure uh, whether they're bothered by the uh, Christian mythos. Anyway, there is a piece in The New Yorker, November the 21st. Check it out if you're interested in C.S. Lewis. There's a profile, uh, funny stuff about his relationship with Tolkien, that sort of thing. Uh, it's called Prisoner of Narnia. It's by Adam Gopnik, good old Adam Gopnik. Uh, yes, how C.S. Lewis escaped. And, uh, okay, there's a new book out from Harper, San Francisco called The Narnian, A New Life of C.S. Lewis by one of his disciples, Alan Jacobs. Okay, it's sectarian enthusiasm, according to Adam Gopnik. That's okay, yes, uh. I don't know. Uh, Gopnik says that um, he wrote a few very good books about late medieval poetry, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but that he, well, let's see. Uh, he quotes a former Archbishop of Canterbury, no, no less, who couldn't stand Lewis because of his bullying brand of religiosity. <laughs> Although John, John Paul, Pope John Paul, was said to be an admirer. Oh, goodness knows. Uh, Anyway, uh, I would recommend, if you're interested, the movie Shadowlands. Uh, it's a, a, a lovely movie. Again, uh, nothing to do with the truth. Uh, it stars uh, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, and it uh, gives you um, uh, the priggish Lewis, finally humanized by sex with an American Jewish matron. Uh, it actually, the movie actually refers reflects the British rather than the American point of view of C.S. Lewis. Uh, yes, the Brits thought that he was a prig to be saved from priggishness um, rather than as a saint who saved others from their sins. That's uh, the uh, 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 Christian view of um, poor old C.S. Uh, let's see, the memoir... His own memoir written in 1955 is called Surprised by Joy. And uh, uh, the joke, of course, is that this woman, the American Jewish matron who was also a poet, uh, was named Joy. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, actually, um, there's a wonderful... Actually, the, the movie was pretty good. I, I kind of liked it. It it was... What was the word? Um it was an old-fashioned notion, you know, that uh, love transcends a lot of things. I, uh, I think we could stand a little more of that. Uh, 
in any case, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis was born back in 1898 into a rough and ready but pious Ulster Protestant family in Belfast. His father was dense and eccentric, yes, a man with, quote, more power of confusing an issue or taking up a fact wrongly than any man I have ever met. Oh, well, there you see. <laughs> and I think that's C.S. Lewis, yes. His mother died before Lewis turned ten. She was warm, loving, and simple. Well, who knows what that was about. In Shadowlands, uh, you see uh, Anthony Hopkins and his brother, Warney, uh, suffering with the death of the mother. Uh, when Joy dies, uh, she dies of bone cancer, uh, her son is seen to suffer. And uh, uh, finally, finally, C.S. Lewis is shown as humanized. Uh, above all, when a young man, often in company with his brother, he read and he walked. He was the sort of kid who was moved to tears every day by poems and by trees. He loved landscape and twilight, myth and fairy tale, particularly the Irish landscape near their suburban home. Most of all, he loved the stories of George MacDonald, now too easily overlooked in the history of fantasy. MacDonald's stories, uh, for example, At the Back of the North Wind, The Princess and the Goblin, and most of all fantasies, evoked in C.S. Lewis an emotion bigger than mere pleasure, a kind of shining sense of goodness and romance and light. Lewis called this emotion simply the joy. Yep, 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 yep. I think of the, the ecstatic little Buddhist dancing in the woods, embracing trees. That's my way of uh, visualizing joy. That thing that's out there, you know, was it E.B. White called it? E.B. White said, my heart has followed all my days, something I cannot name. The young Lewis found magic in things as different as Beatrix Potter and Longfellow, Paradise Lost and uh, Norse Myth. They taught me longing, he said. They made him a votary of the blue flower after a story by the German poet Novalis in which a youth dreams of a blue flower and spends his life searching for it. Ah, right, yes, yes, free association. The old blue bird of happiness. <laughs> now, for Lewis, though, the Christianity that he knew in childhood, by contrast, seemed the opposite of magic and joy. It was all dull sermons dry moral equations to be solved. Now, this loving and mother-deprived boy, again, his mother died when he was ten, was sent to a series of nightmarish English boarding schools. Once again, yes, suffering enters. Lois was beaten and bullied and traumatized beyond even the normal expectations of English adolescence. His own words about the place are practically Leninist. <laughs> Yes, one headmaster raced down the length of a room with his cane to beat a lower middle-class boy enraged by his social pretensions. Right, there you go. Lois writes about his last school, Malvern, at such length and with such horror, um, even with far more intensity than he writes about serving on the Western Front, that it is clear that the trauma 
coming at a time of sexual awakening, was deep and lasting. It seems to have had the usual result. Lewis developed and craved what even his Christian biographer Jacobs calls mildly sadomasochistic fantasies. These in letters to a homosexual friend. He even named the women he'd like to spank. <laughs> For a time he signed his private letters. Uh, Philomastics, that is, whip lover. Yes, I remember once writing a poem called Nostalgia for the Whip. <laughs> yes. And I think that was after Nietzsche. He always said, when you go among women, do not forget to bring your whip. <laughs> well, Lewis was a bright and sensitive British boy, turned by public school sadism into a warped, morbid, stammering sexual pervert. Ah, it's the usual story. What was special about C.S. Lewis was that throughout it all, he kept an inner life. There you go, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. No matter how lonely, no matter how dark the cell, we can keep an inner life. Uh, this piece goes on to say that joy kept him alive. It's possible that the absence of happiness allowed an access of joy. When Lewis served on the Western Front in 1917, he got what every soldier wanted. An honest wound, honestly come by, but bad enough to send him home. Still, he saw the trenches as they really were. And though he chose largely to forget and tried to uh, deprecate the importance of the horribly smashed men still moving like half-crushed beetles, he admitted in later years that he had had nightmares about it for the rest of his life. Okay, yes, let's see. That's World War I, 1917. Oxford always seemed like joy to escapees from public schools. Add the Western Front, and it must have seemed like something close to paradise. Uh, let's see. After Lewis's first long residence there, upon his departure from the army in 1918, he never left Oxford again, except at the end for Cambridge. He took a first in classics. Then he made a decision, slightly daring in those days, <laughs> when teaching English literature seemed as swinging as teaching media studies does now. He decided to become a tutor in English, became a fellow in English at Magdalen College. He also took up with a much older married woman, with whom he had a long affair that may have had a sadomasochistic tinge. Okay, this goes on and on about the new biography of C.S. Lewis. Once again, it's called The Narnian, uh, Harper, San Francisco, still in hardback. It's written by Alan Jacobs. And if you like C.S. Lewis, you might want to check this out. Uh, let's see, it goes on and on about Lewis becoming an Oxford legend and... Uh, holding beer and Beowulf evenings in his rooms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he held to a narrow, anti-modern curriculum in place at Oxford, and he befriended a young, <laughs> a young man named J.R.R. Tolkien, whose views on teaching English were even more severe than Lewis's. Tolkien thought that literature ended in 1110. 
I think he has a point. Uh, <laughs> Lewis had a reputation as a tough but inspiring teacher. Okay. Okay, he got the greatness of Wodehouse long before it was fashionable to do so. He appreciated Trollope over Thackeray. And he could admire even writers unsympathetic to him, such as Wolfe and Kafka. He was a partisan without being a bigot. Okay, I have to stop now, but uh, I will be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20 to talk about the dirty novel written by Scooter Libby. Scooter Libby, yes, it was called The Apprentice. These right-wingers love to write bodice-ripper novels. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till Thursday morning, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. holiday season and get behind the scenes of the KPFA Crafts and Music Fair at the Concourse in San Francisco, Saturday, December 10th and Sunday, December 11th. Volunteer two or more hours of your time to help us produce this annual public event, now in its 35th year. To learn more about how you can be a part of this production, please contact Maria at 510-848-6767, extension 245. Or email me at maria at kpfa.org. Thinker, scholar, activist Angela Davis.